0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, where your source for growth in the area of national security law during this nationwide pandemic. These protests, quarantines, and frankly all the time. So I'm Elisa. We're glad you're here. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimer, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right. So today's podcast would have to be about election security, of course. Um, We've done a podcast on the mind of Vladimir Putin, his efforts to interfere, and a natural next step would be to follow up with election security. Um, so, according to the Stanford-MIT Healthy Elections Project, the United States has more than 10,000 different voting systems. Uh, and the Constitution left voting to the states, and the state can, states can delegate that down to virtually a municipal level. So, what part of the federal government provides help and resources to states trying to be good stewards of a free and fair election system? Well, today our guest is Dan Sutherland. Dan is the chief counsel of the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency, which is, um, the the acronym is CISA, but don't confuse that with the Cyber Information Sharing Act. We're talking about the agency. Um, So if you don't know what it is or why it's critically important to elections and national security, this is your podcast. Dan, thanks for coming in today. We're really glad you're here. Thank you. All right, you are the explainer today. Why don't you just explain the role of the Cyber Information Security Agency to our listeners?
1: Okay, great. Thank you for, um, for letting us talk about um, CISA and then also about election security, where we're going. CISA is perhaps the country's newest government agency. That's a little bit misleading. Until 2018, we were an organization that was attached to the Secretary of Homeland Security's office, but in 2018, Congress launched us as the newest operational component of the Department of Homeland Security, just like Coast Guard, TSA, Secret Service, et cetera. Um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has about 2,000 employees and approximately $2 billion in budget. We, CISA is the nation's risk advisor. We help our stakeholders to understand and manage cyber and physical risks to our critical infrastructure. Um, our job really is to work side by side with public and private uh, sector organizations to empower them to understand the threats and deal with the threats that they face, and also to project forward and think about building a more secure and resilient cyber and physical infrastructure uh, in the future. Um, One of the things I'll point out is we benefit from one of the most um, robust privacy protection uh, structures in the government. Stewarding data is one of our cornerstones of our of our agency and we really invested in that. We engage in information sharing, analysis, assessments, incident response, uh, we provide threats and warnings, we provide stakeholders with uh, sophisticated cybersecurity tools and capabilities. To make that come to life a little bit I'll just throw out a couple of numbers. We, we operate a cyber threat intelligence feed that has um, shared over five million unique cyber threat indicators in the past three years. Uh, we generated over 30,000 um, cyber hygiene reports in the past six months, vulnerability reports that we give to state and local governments and, and private sector companies. Uh, we've done in-depth assessments of over 100 of the uh, federal government's most um, significant data assets after the OPM breach. We really focused on that. Uh, we deploy about three incident response teams a month to different places around uh, the country. Now, that's pre-COVID. We're doing less traveling than normal, but I just um, make the point that we have instant response teams. Um, We operate sensors at the perimeter of the .gov environment that allow us to see the net flow coming in and out of the uh, federal civilian uh, networks. Um, We also have sensors around different state governments, which I'll expand on a little bit um, later. We have sensors in all 50 states. Uh, We have about 12 or so different countries that are that are contributing their uh, their data. And so we really operate a very robust um, information sharing environment um, there. I hope that gives just a sense, just in those um, numbers give a little bit of a sense of what CISA is all about.
0: Uh, so Dan, it may come as a surprise to people that um, other countries help us by providing information. I imagine these are things like um, Information that would be needed to patch a network, for example, hey, we found this malware. You ought to be aware of it. You can you can patch your network and the like. And it's encouraging to hear that we're getting help. Um, and it's it's also great that you have cyber incident response teams. I do wonder, and I want to ask you what they can respond to because, you know, as I see it, there is you know sort of elections infrastructure, and then there are the databases and state. Um, agencies that hold private information about individuals that would inform the voting rolls. So, when you say you have incident response teams, what kind of incident and what sort of systems would need to be implicated before you could deploy? And how?
1: Yeah. So, incident response is just one of the things that we are uh, we're involved with. But we do incident response for federal agencies, for state and local agencies, and for Um, certain private sector entities if there's a particular circumstance where there's a private sector company maybe it's a a, a critical infrastructure organization and we think that the uh that the actor involved there might be nation state um that might be a place that we would deploy resources obviously we can't we have to make uh, judgments as to where we would send instant response teams um and so that would be kind of one of the factors but we we have um and incident response teams that are available to do that that type of work in um in federal agencies but also state and local agencies who've done a, a lot a tremendous amount of work um, with regard to state and local agencies um, in, in incident response
0: and when you say incident just in case you know we will have some people that aren't really clear on what that might mean are we talking about a breach of a computer network or the like um
1: but yeah i would use i would not use the term breach but i would use the term a cybersecurity incident um, yeah, so when, when there's a, an incident of some sort, um, we might be asked to come in and look. Um, our teams are also hunt teams, which is a proactive look at a network. Um, our legal practice is um, caught up quite a bit in trying to negotiate the legal agreement to allow our teams to participate in either proactive hunts or incident response and in negotiating those agreements and signing those agreements Um I hope that's helpful in 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 understanding what what our agency does, but also what our lawyers do in the agency.
0: I think so. All right. So you know we we've noted here at the committee we've noted you know there've been a number of reports that have come out, sort of looking at election issues from um, foreign malign efforts to like just how well states are managing their databases. And as I mentioned, I noticed um, that the organization, I guess, Nate Persili and some of those fellows are ahead of it. um, We've got 10,000 or more different voting systems across the country. Um, So my question to you is, um, you know, at the end of that bipartisan staff report um, that a lot of us saw, it looked like some of the states didn't even know that their networks had been penetrated by foreign actors, maybe even state actors. It didn't mention whether or not they discovered apparent backdoors, so that these systems could be reaccessed. But it also seemed like a lot of states didn't even download patches that were available. There seemed to be a lot of what we call ISACs, information sharing uh, and analysis centers, which are, were spawned from, I forget which of the homeland security acts, and they were intended to be sector specific. I mean, I don't, I don't even think of election infrastructure as being a sector, maybe you do. Um, But what do we do with some of these states that I guess, as I read, it seem to be, um, they seem to need a little extra special education, maybe a little help. Um, They were underperforming, uh, it looked like.
1: Well, let me um, outline what we've been doing in this area. And, um, and I think it really help bring us all up to date as, as we are just a month or so from the election um, as well. What is the current kind of posture? And we've been saying three things I'm going, this is a three hour seminar that I'm going to do now in, in a minute and a half. But the three things that we've been trying to say is, first of all, a community that is focused on security has been developing. And that kind of gets to your question, but I'll I'll come back to it. The second thing is we've been offering a number of security offerings to uh, election officials, focused security offerings that have helped them um, enhance uh, enhance their security posture. Again, I'll come back with some more detail. But the third thing is that um, we in the federal government have really worked on having a collaborative approach among us in the federal government to these issues. Let me just jump back to the, to the, uh, the, each of the points. So when in 2016, um, there was, uh, there, the community of election administrators, um, election security was not a topic of conversation. It wasn't a language that they were speaking. Since 2016, we are now working with all 50 states, local election officials, with election security vendors, private companies that, um, that, that um, sell and manufacture these machines, and with political campaigns. And we're helping them all to better understand the, the landscape here. Um, since 2016, the election infrastructure ISAC has been launched, the E-ISAC. And it is really flourishing. So I think it clears up some of the question you were asking about the, the, um, the wide range of ISACs. There is an ISAC for uh, the election infrastructure um, sector. And it's actually the fastest growing ISAC in history. Uh, the, we now have um, several thousand members of that ISAC. Um, We also have established mechanisms under the CPAC uh, structure, which is a structure created in the Homeland Security Act, a critical infrastructure partnership advisory council under that structure so that key players can meet together and then provide consensus advice to the federal government. Um, So the government coordinating council has a subsector focus on election security. Um, Really, I guess, all in all, in all 50 states and close to 7,000 jurisdictions are getting some sort of benefit from the services that have been developed and offered, whether it's threat information or best practices or specific services or strategic inf- uh, information election security. So just to get back to your question, you really see a completely different landscape as far as the administration of election security is definitely in, the vocab- in their vocabulary in a way that it has never been the case um, before.
0: But one is left with the impression that um, even with sort of all this robust interaction with the federal government, this access to information um, through the EISAC and other mechanisms, you know, one was definitely left with the impression that um, some of the states, there was maybe a little bit of territorialism, you know, they wanted they didn't really, they resented the federal government saying you're not managing this well. Um, has that culture gone now? Or are you just, you described it as I noted this, I think you said developing, um, is that gone? Are, are people under getting it now? Do they, do they, have they had that come to Jesus, Buddha, whatever moment?
1: <laughs> well, it is definitely a new environment now, right? Up to and after the 2016 elections, there was some concern on the part of state and local election administrators of the role of federal government here. But um, since that time, uh, we really have a very robust partnership. And when I say we, I mean us, um, FBI, uh, you know, Maine Justice, the Election Assistance Commission, the EAC, um, and then organizations like the National Association of Secretaries of State, the National Association of Secretary of um, State Election Directors, NASA and NASA. These are all the types of organizations, the EISAC, that are that are working together. And it is a new, um, it is a new environment, um, you know, entirely in terms of cooperation and and um, and the type of uh, security um, interest that is being shown by election administrators.
0: All right. Well, that's good. Uh, that's really encouraging to hear. But um, we're all still nervous. This is. Um This has been uh, a trauma, if you will, to the American people. I think, and let's let's project forward about one major question here: Um, How real are the perceived threats to election systems themselves?
1: Okay. Well, let let me jump back. You're you're making me go too fast. I I want to jump back and talk to you about some of the. Um, uh security offerings that we have provided to uh, the elections officials and, and I think that'll be a really good um, backdrop. Um, we do um, have done extensive trainings. Um, over 3,000 election officials have completed our on- online training courses. That's just ours. There's private sector organizations doing training. there's others, but just ours over 3,000 election officials. We've done, uh, had a huge initiative on ransomware. Uh, we've done a voter registration database ransomware initiative that we've really pushed out and spent a lot of time on. We've helped um, the state and local uh, election officials develop um, cyber incident detection and notification planning guidance. So if you have a, uh, uh, an, an incident, you now have a game plan. Um, We've conducted hundreds of assessments. Um, We do vulnerability scanning, red team assessments, pen testing. We've got um, hundreds of them who are weekly receiving reporting from us on ways to improve their um, security. We've done a lot of exercises. We have a national exercise called Tabletop the Vote. We just had it um, this summer and we had um, people from over 37 states participate in this three day seminar. Plus, we have um, created something called um, Tabletop in a Box which basically allows them to take the exercise and do it on their, on their own uh, local le- uh, levels. We've also done some really interesting things like um, product evaluation testing. We've engaged directly with vendors of elections machinery, giving them critical product evaluations and election related software and devices. Um, we're doing endpoint security. We're putting uh, sensors um, in different parts of, of the state. So actually we now have sensors in just like we have the uh, sensors around the .gov environment, we have them in states, all 50 states. We have sensors so we can really um, track NetFlow and that also allows the EISAC, if we can make recommendations to them on signatures that they could deploy, they have the ability to do that type of thing. So actually, I guess um, just you know the, the bottom line, I, I did wanna say to help like put this into context, because we have the sensor coverage of the election community it gives us the best, it gives us the federal government, the best visibility over any single sector throughout critical infrastructure community. We don't have that with other critical infrastructure communities that we do have here. So anyway, that's a broad sense of what of what the security offerings that we have provided and that the states and locals are, are taking advantage of.
0: All right, and so, so you're actually doing pen testing of systems, which is really fascinating. For those of you who don't know, um, why don't you say what penetration testing is? Is it you're trying to hack into the system?
1: Yeah, the um, our team that does penetration testing are the happiest group of people. You walk into their their space and they they smile all day long. They try to break into systems. Now we as lawyers is another part of our legal practice is to negotiate the agreement to allow our our guys in uh, those types of um, settings, uh, which is a fun area of law as well. But yeah, they try to find. Uh, vulnerabilities, um, that we can then report to the entity that we have identified these vulnerabilities. Um, it's pretty standard, um, in, uh, the private sector. And so it's a new thing that we're able to bring to state and local uh, elections officials, which are often, um, you know, smaller entities and, and, and don't have the resources for sophisticated, some sophisticated, um, uh, security practices like, you know, a, a large corporation would, and we're able to provide that for them.
0: All right. And you also talked about um, equipment, voting equipment. Is there more than one vendor of voting equipment now, Dan?
1: Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of different um, vendors and they're, and they're part of the, uh, this um, information uh, sharing organization or structure because they're an important player in, in the mix as well.
0: I would imagine so. Um, All right, so let's, it's election night.
1: Yeah.
0: Everybody's sitting around with popcorn. At the same time, everybody is very, very worried about possible interference, hacking, meddling of some kind, not just with respect to the paper ballots, but of course, with respect to any infrastructure that might be digitally based. So what are you guys going to be doing to support that process and our free and fair elections.
1: Okay. Um, We're going to have a very robust operational posture on and around um, election night. We've actually um, kind of kicked off a lot of this already, um, but we will have 24 seven watch floor coverage. We're already doing that. We have teams um, around the clock who are who are now in our operations uh, center working this. We'll do that there. Um, we will have, um, the uh, resources basically will have folks available um, to enable an enhanced uh, analysis of potential activity. So if something comes in the door and it's 10 o'clock at night, we've got um, key analysts who are available to do that, that type of work. Um, we will have in person and virtually a wide range of federal uh, officials, the relevant associations that I mentioned, the EISAC, social media platforms and others in, in the room. So we're gonna have a chat room one that's a federal chat room so will that will include fbi um dod um, nsa the postal service uh, intelligence community agencies and us and others Um, so we'll be able to be communicating we're going to have a uh, state local tribal territorial chat room where fbi and CISA will be on a chat room with state and local election officials and they're able to um to just text uh, in this chat room, questions, thoughts, uh, concerns, whatever, and, and both FBI and are in that conversation with them, and then, physic- well, in 2018, we have physically in the room, we had uh, these folks from different federal agencies, from NASA and NAS Ed, from even some of the social media platforms and others, so that we were in a room together for a couple of days around the election. That will be both uh, virtual and in the, in the room um, for this day, but it'll be a I guess the the bottom line that I would like to say is um, we've got a very robust operational posture. I know FBI does, the social media companies do and and others as well.
0: And that's just what we know about, right? (laughs) Okay, so um, look, I I mean, part of this comes down to the fact that um, you can provide a lot of resources but we can't really force states to practice good cyber hygiene or sensible infrastructure protection. Um, So how are we incentivizing them um, to run free and fair elections when many of the states present themselves, and it's probably true, as virtually broke? Um, And sometimes they seem unable or unwilling uh, to do the things that are necessary to protect the voting systems. Now, I know you mentioned that culture has changed. We're in a new time. People get it. Um, But how do we incentivize them?
1: Well, our experience has been that state and local election officials are very committed to ensuring the security of the election they administer. It is their profession. This is what, this is what they do, and they want the, the um, election to be administered in a fair way. They're very serious about it. They've really invested in this effort. Um, Congress has invested um, over a billion dollars in funding in the past uh, few years as well to, to help. So it, it really is a new day from 2016.
0: Although, interestingly, you mentioned that. I mean, one thing about the funding that was pointed out when the most recent um, effort to fund was sort of ended, and it was that a lot of the states hadn't even used the money. Maybe they didn't need it. I don't know. Um, but it, does, it did raise questions in my mind about why you wouldn't do absolutely everything you could. But in any event, um, let's talk about people, because uh, we're a country of people. And people need also to protect themselves from being sucked in by influences on social media that originate from foreign countries or their proxies. Uh, And I think also we're gonna need a culture in our average citizen so that they're trained not to click on things like malicious links. So what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so um, we have done a great deal here as I I hope I've, I've outlined. But the last piece, as you say, is educating voters. Right now, there's more information available to a voter than probably any time in our history. That's probably true in any um, part of our lives now. There's more information available. so We're really trying to make sure that voters know to ultimately go to trusted sources, to state and local election officials, to get information on how to vote, when to vote, where to vote. Don't don't trust uh, something that's um, unusual or something that's come across your social media the last measure of resilience is the voter. So um, our director has been, director Chris Krebs has been saying that everybody should be a three P voter. And the three P's are a prepared voter, a participating voter, and a patient voter. And a prepared voter is make sure you know what your plan is for election day. Make sure you understand where you're supposed to vote, how you're supposed to vote, what the requirements are for voting, If you're, you know, voting absentee or if you're going in for early voting, be prepared. The second is be a participating voter. You know, one of the issues, real issues with the election is that we need more people to come forward to serve as election workers. If people feel comfortable and safe doing so, But anyway, be a participating voter. And the third is to be a patient voter. Um, The increase in absentee voting, no question, is going to take a little bit longer to count. And some states have rules where they can't even start processing valid votes even today. They have to wait until election day. If you have a place like Michigan, where you've historically had about 4% of absentee ballots, that went up to 74% for the primary. It's obviously going to take a little bit um, longer. So those are the three Ps. An illustrative initiative, I think, in this area, it's not the only, but it's an illustrative one, is the National Association of Secretaries of State, (NAS) introduced a... a uh, an initiative they call um, hashtag trusted info 2020. And that's to try to direct people to their local election officials as the credible verified sources of election information. So if somebody tells you that, you know, on Facebook or, or somewhere else that, that the polls are closing three hours early, go to your trusted source and find out whether that's true or not. If they, if somebody tells you the elections on Monday and not on Tuesday, we'll go to the trusted source. So that's the, the the purpose of that initiative. We've done, try to do as much as we can in the um, disinformation context. We just put out just um, this week, we published a disinformation toolkit, which is a, a toolkit of information that is going to help uh, state and local election officials to be able to communicate with their stakeholders during the election process and really wrap their arms around that issue that you just raised, you know, in the question. So we're going to, try to help them have a, have control over that situation rather than be um, reactive to it. And that's the purpose of this new disinformation toolkit. Those are just a couple of examples of, of initiatives being undertaken here.
0: Well, they all sound um, very sensible. And uh, I still think, you know, I guess there's only so much you can do about influence over social media, which is sometimes issues focused and less sort of specific to elections. Although we did have an example, we have had examples where groups of voters were discouraged from showing up at all and exercising their right to vote. And you ought to smell that as a rat when you see it um, and think that through more carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we're undergoing some pretty serious changes right now. We've talked to, or I mentioned, I guess, a little bit about some of the legislative proposals to provide funding for better elections systems. Can you just update our listeners on what happened to those?
1: Great, Um, yeah, you you had mentioned that before. So we really think that the funding provided by Congress through the HAVA Act, the Help America Vote Act, as well as the CARES Act funding has really led to measurable improvement in the security posture. So let me just give you a little background. Have a election security funds were appropriated both in 2018 and 2020. In 2018, the Congress um, provided 380 million dollars in grants. They were made available to states to improve the administration of elections for federal office, including to enhance technology and to make uh, election security improvements. Then, in 2020, the Consolidated Appropriations Act provided an additional 425 million in funds. And in March, um, in the CARES Act, Congress allocated $400 million um, for states to deal with the impact of COVID-19 on elections. So all told, you're, you know, it's over a billion dollars in, in funding. As far as how they have spent the money, the reporting on the 2018 um, money is in. The reporting on the money that um, came in twenty that was appropriate in 2020 will come at the end of the year. So we can speak to what happened in the, with the 2018 money. And um, it's very encouraging, really, about 50% of that funding went to cybersecurity investment. So that's neat. You know, people who know how to um, manage the process, buying additional cybersecurity services. 28% of the grant money went to improving and updating systems. And another 10% of the grant funding went to voter registration and voter registration database upgrades, which, uh, which were needed, to, um, too. Um, if anybody wants to read more on this, the National Association of Secretaries of State put out a white paper in April, and they talked about the v- variety of ways that states have, have used that, um, um, that money. So I'll just uh, reference that's an additional resource. Somebody wanted to read some more on the matter.
0: Well, we'll make sure to hyperlink that in the notes uh, to the cast. Um, And we can also, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think healthy elections will also allow you to hyperlink to your individual state um, elections authorities so that you can keep up with what the rules are when the polls closed, um, and then you can have facts to deflect any um, nonsense. And it's really less for our listeners and I think more for the people around them whom they support. But I'd like to to move on to, we're seeing another interesting change this time around. So there are now private organizations that have received funding from, without irony, Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, um, such as Tech and Civic Life, which is headed by, uh, I think, an election policy powerhouse named Tiana Epps Johnson. Um, And they're getting money out to the states and jurisdictions to help with election infrastructure, which is kind of what you're talking about, these federal funds and appropriations were intended to do. So are these groups really filling a void that is properly the function of Congress? And does CISA do anything to coordinate with these kinds of organizations?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our lifeblood is engaging and coordinating with the private sector. This is what we do day in and day out. So in the election space, that's absolutely the case um, as well. Um, We do coordinate with that organization and and others like them uh, and collaborate with them in a variety of projects. Um, Your question has the assumption that there are gaps in what the Congress has done, and that's not my place as a um, chief counsel of of an executive branch agency to critique. I mean, I will point out that the Congress has put around $1.2 billion in election security over the last um, two years. Um, But... um, I, yeah, I do think we do engage with those in the private sector and they're playing a very important role.
0: I do think it's 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 an interesting sort of situation, Dan, where um, a lot of people really just don't look that closely at what the ballot rules are, for example. Um, you know, we've got an issue in the District of Columbia where you don't get counted if you don't sign the envelope and you don't put it in the privacy sleeve if you're voting Um you know, remotely. But I just find the whole thing fascinating that given the sort of magnitude and importance of this right, that you wouldn't do exactly what you're advocating be done, which is slow down, be patient, bother to educate yourself, make it right. Now, flipping back for a minute, though, you know, we did see this in the past patchwork of abilities, if you will, from the states and municipalities that were sort of memorialized in that uh, staff report out of the House. But Has there been a state that you would hold up as a model? Maybe they got an A-plus for management of elections. Do you mind sharing that with us?
1: I don't think um, I could point to a specific um, state. I don't know that that would be, uh, you know, appropriate for me to pick out a specific state. I can talk to you about the tendencies of, of successful election administrators, but maybe not one specific.
0: Well, I'm just talking about like when they actually bothered to download the patch. Bothered,
1: <laughs> bothered yeah, I mean, to look
0: at the vulnerabilities. Though those people who they were paying attention, they cared. Or, you know, maybe they, for example, seemed to be aware of the fact that they had a potential state actor that might have crawled into their system and been sitting there um dormant for God knows how long. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, I guess the point I was making earlier when in our discussion is that um you know, we have really had a very wide range of um, state and local election officials and administrators who participated in, in this new environment of trying to enhance security. I, I mentioned in our, our most recent national tabletop, we had um, over 2,000 people participate from 37 different states. We've had over 3,000 people take our training. So it's been very widespread. And, and as I say, it's a, it's a new environment in that, um, in, in that community.
0: 37 states, that means that 13 weren't there. I'm just throwing that out there, okay? <laughs> you, can, you can catch that or not. Um, all right, so I think our listeners, many of them are probably gonna to wanna to take a look at CIS's toolkit um, and the other resources. We'll make sure to hyperlink those in the notes to the cast. Uh, I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't also mention the new ABA website, which you can find at wwwambardorg vote. And that maintains a host of information about voting, civic participation, including voter registration, and importantly, think Dan mentioned this: how to become a poll worker, and other resources on election and voter security. Look, if you're a young person and uh, oh, you're fleet of foot, and you can go in the in the middle of a pandemic for crying out loud, show up so the mostly elderly people who have held this infrastructure together for us for years. Don't have to show up. Be a nice person. Dan, I am really glad that you came in. I'm glad you talked about this today. I can't think of anything more important right now. And um, what I really hope is that when this is over with, we can do like a hot wash postscript uh, and we can talk about lessons learned because my guess is there will be a lot of them.
1: Yeah. Can I mention two other resources for people who want to know more? First is um, uh, Just Today, Video messages have been released on YouTube from the director of the FBI, from uh, General Nakasone, from Director Krebs, and from uh, William Avenina, who's the director of the uh, NCSC at at ODNI, uh, the the counterintelligence organization at at ODNI, and each one of them is about 10 minutes of of video there that I think are really well worth listening to for people uh, concerned about or wanting to know a little bit of the landscape there. The second resource I will mention is – Our organization has been uh, doing a cyber summit. We're broadcasting it on um, YouTube. And the fourth and final session, which will be October the 7th, is three hours of programming just on defending our democracy. So if you want to go on YouTube, it'll be available there for as long as you'd like to see it. There's some really good content I think people are going to enjoy um, seeing and learning as they think about this issue.
0: That's, uh, that's terrific, and I'm really glad to hear that. We'd be happy to hyperlink those things. Um, and I, do, I did notice that the Washington field office, for example, of the FBI, uh, today released a bulletin caution, cautioning people against Russian interference and asking them, be smart, be more sophisticated than we have collectively been. So that is really great. And three hours of programming is, is really quite an undertaking. Dan, it's been fabulous having you uh, with us. We, we really look forward to having you back when this is all over. And I just wanna thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security is gonna continue to keep you informed on all sorts of fast-moving national security law developments. Um, we are pleased to partner tonight with the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force uh, for this time to present this podcast. And uh, don't forget, for what it's worth, none of us are here uh, except as in our individual capacity. We're not here on behalf of any agency or firm. So please, everyone, be well, be safe, vote, volunteer. We're all in this together, even though we may have different views, it makes no difference, we're all Americans. Let's come together through education, knowledge and growth.